I'm excited to get to teach on Francis Schaeffer this morning because this is a man who, who I've uh, read and followed and who's been an inspiration uh, to me for a long, long time, 30 years, I guess. Uh, y'all who are just coming in, come on in, make yourselves at home. There's got to be some seats that you could just push people over and get. And uh, uh, if you don't have a handout and you'd like one, a lesson, raise your hand and they'll bring one down to you. Um, but it looks like most people have gotten one. Good. Um, Francis Schaeffer is an interesting guy. Uh, he is dead. And for those of you who may be visiting uh, and, and haven't been in class for a while, which obviously is a number of you, what we've been doing in this class is going through church history. And we've covered 2,000 years of church history over the last 92 lessons. This is lesson number 93. We made it through the 100s, 200s, 300s, all the way up, uh, and we are in the, the 20th century, the 1900s, as we're looking today. And that's where we get with Francis Schaeffer. I'm not going to give a lot of biographical information about Francis Schaeffer. If you want that, it's interesting. You can read about it. You can read uh, good glossy stuff. You can read nitty-gritty, uh, uh, dirty laundry stuff. You can read all sorts of things you want to read because Francis Schaeffer was not God. And he was not a perfect human being, and he didn't uh, live a perfect life, though by our standards, he was pretty good. Um, but uh, uh, like everybody else, uh, including me, uh, all of us have our shortcomings, and he certainly had his fair share too. So you can read about him in other places. What I want to do is talk about why he is a significant player in the, the process of church history. And I'm going to start by giving you a picture, if my remote control works... It does not work. There. We'll do it that way. Ah, now it's working. This is uh, Led Zeppelin, 1969. Who remembers Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> Who had it as a high school prom night song or something, you know? Um, Jimmy Page, uh, uh, lead singer for Led Zeppelin in 1969, meets Frank Schaefer at the time being called Frankie, son of Francis Schaeffer. Frank is 17 years old and is any 17-year-old kid in 1969 enamored uh, the opportunity to meet the Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. And Jimmy Page says, so who are you? And he says, my name is Frank Schaeffer. Oh, you're related to Francis Schaeffer? Yeah, that's my dad. And Jimmy Page pulls out of his pocket... Francis Schaeffer's book, Escape from Reason. says, hey, I'm reading your dad's book. It's really cool. <laughs> of course, Frank Schaeffer's thinking, my dad, the nerd? Um, <laughs> Frank Schaeffer is there. And he says, uh, how'd you get my dad's book? Oh, Eric Clapton gave it to me. and said, it's a great read. He's right. Okay, that's kind of significant. I mean, we could like just sort of pause the class now and go through Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin lyrics and spend the rest of the class trying to find a Francis Schaeffer phrase in them or something. Escape from Reason, though, was the book. Now that's, like I say, pretty significant. So we've got uh, Plant, we've got Clapton paying attention to Francis Schaeffer and finding him, quote, a good read, close quote. You know who else we've got? James Dobson. James Dobson says... Uh, when asked, would you please put together a list of things that have influenced you to read? He says, let me do instead authors. Number one, 
Francis Schaeffer. Number one, Francis Schaeffer. Not only that, have you ever seen this guy's picture before? Jerry Falwell? Jerry Falwell was anti-political. Jerry Falwell, anti-political, until he read Francis Schaeffer and credited Francis Schaeffer with what pushed him into the realm of politics. So here you've got Francis Schaeffer surrounded on the left by Plant and Clapton, on the right by Dobson and, and Falwell and countless others. Who is this fella that's paid attention to by such extremes of our world and culture? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Francis Schaeffer's works are all assimilated into five volumes you can buy, should you choose. The Collected Works of Francis Schaeffer, and that's the current printing, what it would look like on the cover. Uh, I would imagine the local bookstore, uh, if not the local bookstore, at least the Christian bookstore would have it. You can certainly order them off Amazon.com or, or any number of on-web places. Uh, but it's not only his books and his writings. He wrote at least 22 books I'm familiar with. He also put out two big movie projects that you can get on DVD. One is entitled, How Should We Then Live? And the other is entitled, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? And they're very interesting, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. Francis Schaeffer did not do this alone. He was married to a woman named Edith Schaeffer. Edith Schaeffer is still alive. She's got to be in her 90s right now. Edith was born in China. Her parents were Chinese missionaries. And she has always been a, a very stout person with her Christian faith, a very devout person, uh, uh, likes to write just as much as her husband did, maybe even more. He tended to like to lecture more. But Francis and Edith Schaefer together have a body of work. And one of her books that I reread, getting ready for this class, is a book entitled Le Brie. Anybody out there speak French? Did I butcher that? Labrie? That's pretty close, isn't it? I mean, I, guy from Lubbock's never too sure, but I don't think I butchered it that badly. Labrie is French for shelter, and it's the name they gave to a community that arose out of first their own little chalet in the Swiss Alps, and then extending further. And this details the story of that community as it unfolded. It was, it was an interesting community. Francis Schaefer and Edith Schaefer, they went over to the Swiss Alps to be missionaries. And while over there, had a number of things happen to them, but ultimately, their biggest mission work came when their daughter went off to school. They had a, their oldest daughter goes to college, a European university. She comes home over the break, and she says, Dad, it's the wildest thing. Nobody here believes in God. And he says, really? And she says, yes. He says, well, bring them back next break. I'd like to meet them. And so all of these avant-garde, hippie, 19, early 1960s stuff going on, they start coming with uh, Schaefer's daughter home over all the breaks, over the weekends. They don't do anything with Schaefer's daughter. They leave her alone, and they stay up all night long talking with Francis. And he just engages them in conversations. And they start finding meaning and purpose in life. And they come to a Christian faith as they do so. And it's pretty profound and it's pretty cool, and all rolled into one. So anyway, I'm rereading the Labrie book about how all of this unfolds. And in the process of rereading it, 
I read this time, maybe for the first time ever, the actual little introduction that Francis wrote to his wife's book. And here's what he said. He said, the work of Labrie has two aspects. First, there is a, the attempt to give an honest answer to honest questions. Honest answer to honest questions. Intellectually and upon a careful exegetical base. Means taking into account scripture. Second, demonstrating that the personal infinite God is really there in our generation. There really is a God that's personal, not a big computer, a personal God. And he's infinite. He's without bounds and limitations. And that was his goal. And that's the way I've divided up the class. I've decided that we will do this. We will look at some of the questions he asked and answered. And we're also going to look at the way he demonstrated the love of a God who is there. Those are the two prongs I'd like to discuss as we discuss them. The questions are interesting to me. Francis Schaeffer said, I've never found a question that it's wrong to ask. As long as it's an honest, legitimate question and not just being asked. And I teach that with our children. I teach that with anybody I meet. Because uh, uh, I believe, to the core of my being, I believe that, that my understanding of God and, and the world is, is a true understanding. Not because I'm so bright. Not because I figured it out. Not at any point. It just seems to me to be the most reasonable understanding of the way the world is. Because I believe that, I don't have any questions that are off limits. Let's, let's ask questions. That's an okay thing to do. Let's ask questions and let's explore. Let's figure out. You know, we've got choices we can make in our life. We can go to church here or we can go to church down the street. Or we can not go to church at all. When we make those choices, please let's make them based upon some semblance of of. of Honesty and, and integrity my understanding of life. So with that, I look at Francis Schaeffer and some of the questions that were asked him that he wrote about and that he loved to answer. And it's interesting to me because almost every question that he really writes about is one that internally he faced. First question. Is there a God? How many of you have asked that question? Okay then we're all in that boat together, aren't we? Do we do this just because we were brought up to? Do we do this because the stores aren't open on Sunday morning? Do we do this because... I, I, what are we doing? Why do we rear our children to believe in God? Is it because that way they're less likely to do time in prison? I met someone the other day who's in Pennsylvania, and I said, oh, you've got a great kid, or you'd love and rearing him? Yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I think our kid's either going to go to Penn State or the state Penn. We're not sure which. <laughs> do we just do this religion thing to help our children along? Or is it real? Is there something to it? Francis Schaeffer is born in a nominal light Presbyterian household. He's not born into intelligentsia. 
if we looked at C.S. Lewis last week, if C.S. Lewis is born of parents who all they have are books and their kid is going to learn and he's going to be intelligent and that's from the get-go, it's very different with Francis Schaeffer. His parents were manual laborer types, hard-working Germans in Germantown, Pennsylvania. And they wanted him to grow up and be an electrician. And wanting this religion gobbledygook messing up their son. Francis Schaeffer goes to church and he doesn't like what he's hearing because it's very progressive and liberal, but it doesn't seem to have any bite to it. So Schaeffer decides, eh, I'm writing off Christianity. I'm just going to write it off. But out of intellectual honesty, he says, before I write it off, I will at least read the Bible. So I'm going to read the Bible, page one to page whatever, then I'm going to write it off. But in reading the Bible, Francis Schaeffer decided, wait a minute, this makes sense. I can't write this off so readily. And so he becomes a Christian. He goes to college. He gets a degree. He goes to seminary. He gets another degree. He gets degrees with honors. He meets the wonderful Edith Schaefer, who's here with his, her family on a furlough. They get married. And he becomes a minister. Moves around St. Louis, some other places. Ultimately goes to Switzerland. But when he's in Switzerland, he decides, Francis Schaefer decides, I still don't believe in God. Yeah. And so he finds himself for several days wandering around the Alps, thinking it through. And after multiple days of wandering around the Alps, thinking it through, he decides the most reasonable, intellectual understanding I can have for the world in the way it is and for me in the way I am is the Judeo-Christian faith. I can't, I can't find anything else that's this reasonable. And so he answers his own question resolutely and, and with the zeal of an alcoholic who has now been set free from alcohol. Dr. Bob's told me before I'm, I'm this way with food in some regards. Now that I've decided these foods are off limits for me, I'm a crusader for anyone else to join my bandwagon. You ever met anybody like that? Now that I, you know, so the alcoholic who's been set free, he's now a crusader for everyone to be a teetotaler, right? You know, whatever it is, you get with me when I'm on one of my hobbies and kicks, and I will bust my gut to try and get you to join me. Okay? <laughs> Schaefer finds his faith, and it becomes very real to him. And it's not because of anything other than the fact that, that, through struggling and prayer and, and working through it, it's there. And it becomes very real to him. So he writes a trilogy of books, The God Who Is There, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, and Escape From Reason. And I can't put them... Escape From Reason, by the way, is the one that uh, Eric Clapton and, and Jimmy Page were so into. Um, I can't even hope to give you a synopsis of these. You Go read them. I'm going to tell you right now, if you read them, sit down with a pencil and paper. Because it's really hard to make sense of some of what he writes. Because Schaefer doesn't write to us in our day as much as he writes about specific problems he encountered with the students who were studying existentialism of Jean-Paul Sartre out of France. Or, or students from Germany who, who've got Heidegger's new existential whatever. 
or if that was already passe, at least it's in the, the history of, of what they had as they come with logical positivism and all these other things that to us are going to seem foreign in terminology. But if you work through it, here's what he basically says. He says, if you want to understand whether or not your faith is the right faith, your belief system, your worldview, German, Weltanschauung, your, 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 your perspective of how things are. If you want to decide if there's credibility, don't get me wrong, you may just be fat and happy going along with life meal to meal. Sometimes I am. But if you want to pause and ask yourself, what do I really believe? What is life really about? He says, what you need to do is you need to write down your world view. How do you view life? What is going on in the world? What is the meaning of life? He says, there's a Christian worldview that Scripture sets out. There's also, uh, uh, he compares it, for example, to an atheist's worldview. The Christian worldview is this. There is a God. There really is an entity that we can call God that is infinite, that is personal, that is moral, that is love as opposed to uh, others' love as opposed to selfish, that, that, that is truthful as opposed to honest, that is what we would call good as opposed to evil. There is an entity that's, that has personality, not a computer, not a IBM super deep thought computer. There's a personality, um, uh, uh, infinite being that has morality. That's step one in the Christian worldview. Christian worldview is that this entity, God, made humanity, male and female, in his image. By that, the Christian worldview says that we, all of us in here, were made personal, just as God is personal. We all have some measure of personality, albeit rather shallow for me and a few others, but there's some there. We all have some measure. We are personal. We all are moral. We all have this internal compass that says there's got to be right and wrong. We may differ on what right and wrong is, but very, 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 very few people don't have some kind of an internal compass. I've never really met one, but I just know they're... Maybe somebody out there who doesn't. But we're not infinite. We're finite. We're not God. We're made in His image. So we have our limitations. That's the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is that though we're made that way and we're made to be with God, we have fallen from God because of our sin. If I had keys in my hand and this key represents humanity, humanity's made to be with God in fellowship, made to talk and walk and, and, and communicate and commune with God, made with the same morality, made with personality. But because we chose to do something, outside of what God in His morality can do, that's what we call sin, then the biblical image is we fell from God. So here we are, we're in these bodies in a world that's under a curse. All of us have this feeling that there's got to be more to life. We've got to be made for more than this. All of us have this external moral compass because we were made to be in God's image, but we're not. So the things we want to do, that we know are good to do, we don't always do them. 
Our reasoning isn't as good as it should be. Our morality is not as good as it should be. And heaven knows our bodies are not. Our Diane would not need a kidney. So here we are. We've got fallen people in a fallen world that are under a curse, as it will. But there is still this infinite personal and moral God out there. Now, the Christian worldview... By the way, everything I've described so far is also the Judaic worldview of, of, of uh, uh, at least, orthodoxy. The Christian worldview diverges at this point because the Christian worldview says that humanity, some price has, some debt has to be paid, some, some uh, um, you, you, you got to throw out the garbage, if you will. And so Christianity says God becomes human and takes the sin, the garbage of the world, and dies with it. So that in Jesus, we have this new opportunity, which in this fallen body we still have is imperfect right now, but within us is this new creation. This is the born-again concept, that we have this new life, that one day when we are through with this world and through with this life will be restored back eternally with God. That's the Christian worldview. Now, the atheist worldview. If there is no God, and I'm talking here atheists, there are lots of agnostic ideas. There there are lots of different faiths of a God beyond the Judeo-Christian faith. But if you do not believe there's a God, you're atheist, then... The reason we're here is because there's been billions of years of time which gives lots of opportunities for chance and somehow it has, it, time and chance has resulted in us being here today with all of our personality, all of our moral failures and moral strengths, all of our conceptions, misconceptions, perceptions. All of this is a result of just Gazillions of years of time and chance. And that's it. So is there objective right and wrong in morality? Well, what is an atheist view of morality? From an atheist worldview, morality could be a number of things. It could be, well, whatever 51% of the people think. If most people think that this is what we should do, then it'll be okay. We'll accept it. Well, that kind of got fuzzy because 51% of the Germans thought it was okay to exterminate the Jews, which is atrocious. And, and, and anybody with any sense of humanity recognizes that's got to be wrong. Okay, well, by wrong, okay, maybe right and wrong is going to be instead of 51%, maybe it's whatever's good for the race at large. Well, no. That was the excuse that Hitler used, drawing on Nietzsche and others, for actually propagating a species of superhumans. Okay, so maybe it's not what's good for the race at large. Maybe it's not what's 51%. What is the basis for saying what you're doing is right or what you're doing is wrong? It's a very tough question if there's nothing outside of us to define morality. It's not hard for the Judeo-Christian. Jew or Christian is able to say, wait a minute, God said, you know, this. 
So it's right or wrong. Our morality is based on what God said. God said, don't commit adultery. So it's wrong. You've got that, that ability if you've got something outside. But if you don't have something outside, it's really tough. Schaefer had a, 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 an all-night session with one student on this. And in the all-night session, Schaefer said, look, quit using the word right and wrong. We've agreed you've got no basis for that. Just use the word blip. <laughs> now, let's talk about what you do and why you do it. Well, I do it because it's blip. Don't do it because it's blip. Well, blip. Schaefer says it didn't take long before they realized that there's the world and their lives are not consistent with the intellectual worldview, the glasses they pretend to see the world through. What's the value in humanity? If all we are is time and chance, is there really any inherent value? I'm going to skip for a minute because we're not going to get through a lot of this if I don't. Schaefer goes on and says, what's the mannishness of man? What, what is it within us that, 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 that speaks of humanity? That speak, There's some quality within us that we all distinguish ourselves from, from the dogs or the cats or the... the canaries or the goldfish or whatever we may have in our homes? Is it that we're just further along a chain of, of production from time and chance? He says, what explains our morality? These are the kinds of questions, and where Schaefer lands on this, is there a God? Is he says, write down your view of the world and then honestly examine your life and see if your life is consistent with your view of the world. Schaefer contends that no one's life is consistent with their worldview unless they have a Judeo-Christian worldview. Because the world truly is that as viewed by the Judeo-Christian understanding of orthodoxy. And so that's Schaefer's position. And it's a compelling different way to, to address this issue of is there a God. Let's move on. Next question, what can we know of God? Okay, let's assume there is an entity out there. That doesn't mean it's a Judeo-Christian entity necessarily. Maybe it's Vishnu or some, something else. So what do we know of God? All right, we're skipping it. That's the slide that would have answered this question in part. But if you want the answer, go read Schaefer. Does man have meaning? Schaefer had a real problem with a lot of the kids who came in. I say kids because now I'm an old guy. And our son's home from Oxford. And, and he's studying philosophy there in graduate school. And he's a kid. So the kids, which means, I guess, people in their 20s who are home from school. Um, the kids that Schaefer was meeting, uh, 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 that his daughters would bring home, and, and uh, uh, that he'd meet and, you know, he'd go lecture at Oxford at, at any number of different places. Um, these kids had a, an issue that was recurring over and over. They didn't feel valuable. They didn't see any inherent worth in who they were. And there was a book that had been a bestseller by a behaviorist named B.F. Skinner at Harvard entitled Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And what B.F. Skinner said in Beyond Freedom and Dignity is this. He said, you know, look, all we are is what time and chance has produced. But let's go a step further, he said. 
All you really are is your genetic makeup and the environment you've been in. No more. You take your genetic pool, who, not pool, your, into your genet, you take who you are genetically and you put it in that environment and you're always going to get the end result of who you are today. There is no free choice. There is no dignity in man. You've got no inherent value. Let's recognize that you are, in essence, a machine. And once we get rid of autonomous man, these are the big words, but the idea that man actually has choice and, and, and freedom and can make decisions and you can choose to go left or right, once we get rid of, he would say, that charade... And recognize the reason you're going right isn't because you chose to go right. It's because genetically you are this blueprint. And this blueprint, as a result of all the environmental factors that have brought you to this point in history, is always going to go right. There is no choice. He says once we recognize that and start treating people that way, then we can make our society better. Because we can start manipulating the genetic pool and the environment. But he says, when you do something good, don't take credit for it. You didn't do it. When you do something bad, don't feel guilt over it. You didn't choose to do it. And the problem with this is, when you do that, some, you know, B.F. Skinner may get to live with his environment that brought him to where he is. But the students who learn it walk away and say, well, then I'm nothing. And you're nothing. I'm a cog in the machine. And Schaefer says, no, 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 no. Schaefer goes back. Schaefer's a great guy for church history because he can't tell you an answer. If you ask him what time it was, he's going to say, let me tell you about the history of the watch. (laughs) And he starts there. And everything he says. So he says, you know, this problem, the Skinner problem, the roots trace back to Thomas Aquinas. Good chance for me to plug the website here, www.biblical-literacy.com. It's got all of our old lessons on it. We spent a few weeks on Thomas Aquinas. Schaefer says, if you go back to Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas says there are spiritual matters, unseen matters, that what we would call, or some writers have called grace. That's not what we think of as grace in terms of evangelical circles. But this idea that there is an unseen spiritual world, ideas, uh, 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 all of these things that aren't physical, they exist. Okay? There's also that world that we see, the physical. If you were a philosophy student, um, Plato's much more looking up. He's got the universals. Okay, Aristotle, his student, was much more into the particulars, didn't believe in the forms. And so this is the seen world. This is the physical world. And Aquinas taught that you can find God in the spiritual realm, this, this unseen realm, but you can just as well find God in the physical realm. You don't need the Bible and Revelation to find God. God is all around us if you're smart enough to perceive it. And Schaefer took issue with that and said, once 
Once Aquinas has done that, Aquinas has driven, drawn a line that's starting to separate those matters which are spiritual from the world and those matters we can see. And then Schaefer shows how that line got progressively further through philosophy as ultimately the things that are in the seen world are those things that can be verified, that science can prove. Those things in the unseen world become those that are just there for those who want to take some grand, blind, irrational leap of faith. And Schaefer charts how over a few hundred years the philosophers moved through this and, and some of the key thought leaders as they did it. And Schaefer says, this is bad. This is a logical end, is B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. If people don't take it even further, Will tells me that he wanted to see Schaefer alive today because a lot of this has now been discounted because the philosophers have come back to saying at this point in time, there's a problem here. And they're recognizing what Schaefer, in essence, recognized. Schaefer says, once you say that the spiritual matters, the unseen, the world of ideas and universals, once you say that that's irrational and all we have is what we can scientifically verify and prove, then man becomes a machine. Because man lives down here. And there's no meaning for man. And Schaefer does a great job of showing how this happens culturally. It's a chain reaction. And this isn't always true. But it's true enough to where it's, it's pretty cool to look at. And this is fun reading of Schaefer. Schaefer shows that philosophers first come up with this stuff. They're the thought leaders. They're the ones who are answering those big questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? And what is life about? And philosophers answer those questions. And when they answer them, it's not just, gee, now the philosophers know, but it's, it's we'll borrow Reagan's trickle-down theory. Instead of trickle-down economics, this is trickle-down philosophy. It trickles down to people. And here's the chain it usually goes in. It goes from the philosophers to the artists. I forgot the name of the Renaissance painter, but when Aquinas, uh, Aquinas comes up with his idea of this separation, there's a, a painter who's got a wonderful painting that he shows Plato with his hands up to the sky because he's pointing to the universals. And his student Aristotle with his fingers pointed down because he's concerned about the particulars. The painters, we tend to think, if you, if, if you grew up the way I did, I tended to think art was really good pictures. Okay? That's not really fair to say because my parents were not that way at all. Um, uh, but I, I was. My sister certainly wasn't. She's very artistic. I just thought pictures were, or art was good pictures. You know, a good artist is someone who can make it look like a photograph. Okay. Turns out I was wrong. Art actually has meaning. And good art conveys meaning. And so the artists are looking to convey. You go back and look at Picasso, and he's trying to paint a universal being during one stint or draw a universal being. Problem is, as he just washes out so many of the details that he can find a universal... You get to the point where you can't even tell it's a person sometimes. Unless he'll write a name on it or something. But artists take what the philosophers are thinking. From the artists, it goes to the musicians. 
idea that we're random and chance, John Cage writes an entire symphony by flipping a coin to decide what each note will be. <laughs> it's not real pretty. <laughs> um, but that's the luck of the draw. Um, you know, maybe it would have been let it be if he had just flipped those coins right. From there it goes to the writers. The writers get a hold of it. From the writers it goes to general culture. And do you know what's always last in the chain almost, it seems? Religion. Theologians. And so theologians are saying now stuff that the philosophers discarded 75 years ago. It's also interesting because there's a trickle down around Western civilization. We get things about 50 years after Europe. You want to know where we're headed if we're not careful? Look at Europe. Anyway, so what Schaefer says is, if you want dignity for the human, if you want to restore dignity, you've got to get rid of the line. You've got to understand that you can't understand nature and you can't understand the world around us without understanding that maybe there's something spiritual and unseen in the world of ideas beyond what's verifiable. You've got to get rid of that line and you've got to draw a circle so that you don't have a closed system for man. So that man's got meaning. And that's Revelation. What is truth? I'm skipping this. Sorry, we don't have time. All right, is Scripture reliable? Schaefer wrote on it, lots of books, go read them. <laughs> Demonstrated love. Yeah. Demonstrated love was the other aspect of this. And in the seven minutes we've got left, let's cover this last 20 minutes of material. Demonstrated love is a soapbox of mine I'd like to stand on for just a moment, if you don't mind. Because the mark of the Christian should be how he shows the love of God to people. And I call it a soapbox because in some ways we are run the risk of leaving a mark that says a Christian is someone who is harsh, mean, and judgmental and doesn't like anybody else and thinks they're all going to hell if they don't get in line exactly the way we do and get cut from the same cookie cutter we're in. That's not the heart of Jesus. And that's not the mark of the church. The mark of the church says every human being has infinite worth and dignity and should be treated that way. Every human being. Not because they're Christians. The worth and dignity of a human being comes because every human being is made in the image of God. And anybody made in God's image is worthy of our love, our respect, and ought to be treated that way. And valued that way. Now that's not to say that if you see someone who doesn't have faith that you shouldn't try and help them in their life. That's the greatest love you can show them. That's to try and show them the meaning and value of the world. That, uh, of the faith that God has made us. Schaefer was good on this. Schaefer preached sermons. No little people is a collection of 16 of his sermons. I love the one about Moses' rod. There are no little people with God. You think God can't do things with you because maybe you don't even get some of this stuff that we're talking about this morning? doesn't matter. Moses is the one that God says, hey, bring my people out of Egypt. Moses says, I can't do it. I'm too, ooh, ooh, ooh. I can't even talk good. Okay? That's my translation, but it's in there. Um, and so God says, what? You know, I, you know, Moses, you know, Technically, I was planning on doing it myself, God. I was just using you. 
Oh, I'm not good enough for you to use, God. I just don't have the gifts and skills and abilities. God says, oh, okay, bless your heart. Then I won't use you. Um, what's that stick you got in your hand? Who's my rod? Okay, I'll use that instead. I'm sure it's much more gifted than you are. Um, why don't you throw it down? And so Moses throws it down. It becomes a serpent. Pick it back up. Picks it back up. It's a rod again. Yeah, that'll do. And so, uh, but hey, someone's got to carry the rod. So Moses, you're coming too. Get that rod down to Egypt so I can use it to let my people go. And so he puts the rod in the Nile to turn it into blood. He reaches the rod out. He takes the rod to part the Red Sea. And Moses was just uh, the luggage carrier for the rod. So Schaefer says, don't feel little. If God's with you, you, you got more going on than a stick. So he can do wonders. Um, true spirituality. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. Becoming a Christian does not mean, oh gee, now I'm signing on to this exhausting list of things I can and cannot do. True spirituality, Schaefer says, is getting your heart right with God. That's where you understand it. It's, it's living this life of love. That's not to say there aren't do's and don'ts, but it is to put them into perspective. One of his biggest books he ever wrote and the, one of the film series he put out was How Should We Then Live? The major complaint, I never got to talk to Schaefer, but I've spent some time with one of his son-in-laws, Udo Middleman. Udo Middleman told me that the major complaint Francis got off of this, Udo Middleman, by the way, is a lawyer. Udo Middleman said uh, the major complaint Francis got off of this was uh, he doesn't answer the question. Someone wanted to read this book, or a bunch of people wanted to read this book, and they have a list of do's and don'ts, and that's not what's in there. What's in there is this exhausting historical perspective of how to get our minds right, how to embrace an understanding of what orthodoxy is. What, is, what, is, what are the Christian basics? What's the Christian worldview? If you've got that, you understand what to do and how to live. He's big on ecology. Big on ecology. He says that the church should be big on ecology. The church should be big because the church is to be a constant healing factor for the broken world. So the church is to seek to heal people's broken relationships with God. The church should seek to heal people's broken relationships with each other. But the church should seek to heal the broken world itself. We don't abuse it. We honor it. And that's the mark of true spirituality. At Labrie, one of the great things was mealtime. I understand from Will, who spent some six weeks or so there that it had shifted to lunch. My sister, Catherine, I didn't talk to her. She spent a few months there. I don't know how it was with her. But when I was there, the, the first time, it was really cool. Okay, we got two minutes. Dale's going to get mad at me because I'm... This is kind of points for home, Dale. Okay, it was really cool. You think about this over lunch today. This is what they would do. You sit down at the meal. There's one or two people that are designated servers and no one else is allowed to get up. They rotate those because they don't want the conversation lost. And the conversation is whatever it's set to be at that point in time for the table. And the meal, the food may be gone, but the meal's not over till everyone's at peace with the conversation. So they'd have meals that last four, five, six hours. Because I was there one time and the, the subject was, why is it when I pray there seems to be a roof over my head and all the prayers come bouncing back? And it was just incredible because this one guy keeps saying, well, the Buddhist thought is blah, 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 blah. And I was sitting there thinking, <laughs> I'm not a Buddhist expert, but I know enough about Buddhism. I don't think that guy's quite right. Maybe I should stick my nose out and explain 
I thought, no, I'm a guest, and generally humility is uh, going to come either by choice or by force. So I'll just <laughs> shut up and listen. Afterwards, I went up, introduced myself to him, said, I found what you had to say about Buddhism interesting. Where did you learn your Buddhism? And he said, well, for 16 years, I was a Buddhist monk at a Tibetan monastery. I thought, yeah, it's a real good thing I didn't explain why he was wrong. <laughs> Points for home. God and faith have nothing to fear from honest questions. God doesn't, God's not afraid of your questions. He's not. Honest questions. Honest answers. No problems. Jesus himself cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can't read the Psalms without finding the psalmist always asking God questions. You go read Job. Job asks God tons of questions. When you get to the end of Job, God doesn't answer all of them, answers some of them, but gets ticked off at Job's friends because instead of asking questions, they're just making these bold statements, making up answers. It's interesting. Second point for home. Scripture gives us true knowledge. It's not exhaustive knowledge. God doesn't tell us everything. Our brains wouldn't hold it. But He does have true revelation for us. God doesn't make us personal and then refuse to relate to us. You don't invent a telephone only to have one. <laughs> hey, got this new phone. I got it patented. No one else is going to get one. Who are you going to talk to? Nobody. <laughs> Finally, the phone that doesn't ring. Um, next point. The mark of a Christian is love. And, and I don't know how to emphasize that enough. Jesus says that's how men will know who you are. It's you love one another. And that's what we need to show to the world. That's when Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. We're a city set up on a hill that's lit. His whole point is that we're the preservers of the culture. We're the ones who have value. We're the ones who understand people have value. We're the ones who understand there's dignity in humans. We're the understand that, the, the, that, that human life is something special and wonderful. And we should treasure it and value it at any age. In any form. Not just the pretty ones. Any. Because it's made in God's image. I'd love to talk to you about this some more. Or any other questions you've got. Any number of us are always down here at the front afterwards. So please come down if you've got any questions at all about any of this. It'd be a lot of fun to talk to you. I don't have a lot of time but this morning. But, but there are some others who do. And, and I'd love to. Would you pray with me in conclusion? Lord, I thank you so much for everyone's uh, uh, investment of time this morning to, to listen to these ideas. I thank you for Francis Schaeffer and the, the ways you've moved in his life uh, to, to give us a body of work to read and study and challenge us and enlighten us. And uh, it is my prayer that you will bless each person here today, that, that things of value will sink in and kind of rumble around in their head and that your spirit will move in their hearts to conviction of of who you are and the wonderful ways you love us and what you've done for us. We're honored to be your children. Through Jesus we pray, amen.